0: Hi, it's Monday morning, let me see if I can do the parsha. I have a packed week, I actually start college tomorrow. Um, as I mentioned, this uh, week is being sponsored, the, uh, the main parts, by uh, Abe Gluck Gluck Plumbing, in memory of his uh, parents, uh, which was Chaim Eliyaz Yashon ben and Chaim V'Fega Basav Shemai Glick, the Nesham I forgot, <laughs> it didn't even occur to me yesterday, he told me we talked about, and the others, these guys dying from bad plumbing in Jerusalem. If they had plumbing in 1860, they wouldn't have had these problems. <laughs> um, today we have the parashat, and my attention is immediately drawn at the beginning when he talks about the king's <clears throat> shun return people to Egypt, which has always been a strange and enigmatic passage. A strange and enigmatic passage, because what happens? Is I assume everybody knows what I'm talking about. Don't, if you have a king, don't give him too much horses, don't give him too much sil- silver, excuse me, too many wives, and so forth and so on. And now we can understand. Don't get arrogant. Arrogance is always a big problem with uh, kings and rulers and presidents. Leads to bad decisions, etc. And the king shouldn't go off firmly, people off the derrick, which of course the Jewish kings mostly did. That I understand. But what's is, don't give him too many horses, um, so you shouldn't return the people to Egypt. Right? Remember that. Don't return the people back to Egypt. The, the language is very enigmatic. Yashiv is what you call, uh, I guess, hephel. So to make return, the king shouldn't make the people return to Egypt. In the context of buying horses, like I say, I know everybody knows this basically, so I'm not going to have to go into the details you understand this. But this has always been a problematic, as far as I'm concerned, because um, for some reason, all your Mefarshim have as, as far as I'm aware, have always concentrated on the halachic side of this, which is understandable because the rabbinic literature is primarily a halachic discourse. And they always concentrate, and there are a million speeches and i'm sure online and what i call french here you know i how can you live in egypt people always lived in egypt what about lo you know uh, it says osifler, the rambam counts not going back to egypt is one of the 613 etc etc and there's all these classic answers i mean the rambam himself as we all know lived in egypt there's even legends about that and I mean, if you really want all the sources of Adios somewhere, I remember, you know, in the in the cheater book, what's it called? Yechavah Is that the one? Um, has all the sources. You know, the Radvas, the Benah B'chayah, the, 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 be'n B'chaya, the Sefer Yeram, uh, and so forth. I don't want to get into that. I'm asking the following question. What's the Pshat? Well, Yashif is Ham What's wrong with going back to Egypt? And, and by the way, the Gemara says, you can go for business, Pragmatia, so it's not interpreted literally as you know, like the land itself is told me, and the Jews should never set foot in Egypt. They could go for other reasons. So, what's going on over here? Really, um, the Gemara always takes this as you know, um, it's mainly Rosh by the way. Uh, the, the, the Jews violated three times, and three times it ended disastrously. It's a very famous. Um, uh, Yoshalmi, often quoted, uh, which itself is a little bit difficult. I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. Uh, it's in Sukkah, the fifth part, and it says, Tony Rashmi, that's a Shimben Yochai, very interesting of all people, Shimben Yochai would be the one saying it, the guy in the cave. There are three places <coughs> um, where it says, I guess in the lo Losha be'er tsray don't return to egypt kasharism mitray mulosiv alola bashama malachem loso simlo losh baderoset ov besimcha sham mitrayin so uh the the second one is, is in today's parsha bashama malachem loso siflo losh baderoset in other words raklo yarblo susim filoyashiv sim mitray malham basus bashama malachem loso siflo losh baderoset like I say, it's funny in the whole makeup of the king, which should be dealing with political questions, constitutional questions, maybe lower, below Susan. You know, don't overstuff the king with luxuries. I get that, but then there is like an interruption with this Egypt business. The goes on to say, as three times they violated disastrously. The Veshlosh on Nafluim, and then and then the third one is done. But say made Trajan, Trajanus. Which again, I'm not in the point here of reading very closely this I got to tell you. you could, because it doesn't say Achas be made Trajan. And what I mean in general is as follows. If you I I'll just say it broadly and then look at it. Because I'm interested in history. It says that three times the Jewish people violated this, three times they had a disaster. A, B, and C. Now let's go backwards. One is Trajan. That means that in the second temple, as you know, there's a very large Jewish community in Egypt. Even the Gemara number of places praises the fancy synagogue in Alexandria. Oh, you know, right? We've all heard that. That's where they waved the flag to hear amen and all that. If you really want to go back there, they even had a temple there, the Temple of Oniz, make the Chonyo. It was a big Jewish community in Egypt. And they survived for many centuries. During the time of the emperor Trajan, apparently the Romans massacred them. That was not the end of the Jewish community in Egypt, but it was a terrible blow. Trajan would be the guy before Hadrian, so this would be an event taking place between the Chor ben Baisheni and Bar in the middle. Okay? Uh, okay, I get that. And then you have Yochan ben Kareach. That is the story of some of Gedalia, that uh, when the f- first temple was destroyed, so uh, the prophet Jeremiah was spared along with Gedalia ben Achikam, and the poor. And the whole story of Gedalia is that in the aftermath of the Chorbeb, Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar said to Yirmi Yo, you can stay, be under a Gedalia, who's not from the royal families, they so won't rebel against Babylonia, and you can keep the poor people with you, the peasantry. And Yirmi Yo, who was a Novi, said, let's take the deal. However, and Yochim Be'Karich was one of the generals that decided, was on, on the good team with Yermio. Then Gadali was assassinated by bad actors. The Jews panicked, they ran away to Egypt. And Yermio, Yir- and they said, Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill us all. In fact, he's going to torture us. And Yermio, who was a prophet, said, listen to me, it's all in the book of Jeremiah. Hashem told me they're not going to kill you. Okay? They're not going to kill you. They'll understand that you are not responsible for the assassination. And if you stay here, we can make Eretz Yisrael work. Even in a small way. And perhaps we'll get the base of English back just persuade the Babylonian king to be peaceful. But they didn't listen. They went into a panic, they ran away to Egypt, and eventually they all perished there. So that's what that means. The third one, and that was the first one of these, I don't know exactly what it means. I have an idea, but I'll tell you. It says Echabimai Sancheirev. Now where in the time of Sancheirev did the Jews go back to Egypt? Hold on for a second here. Oops, I had a little interruption there. A little interruption. Um, Go back to Sancheirev. There was no, let me put it this way, there's no return of the Jews to Egypt in times of the time that I know about or anybody else. You understand yep. what I'm saying? If you go by Trajan, then there was indeed a large settlement of Jews in Byzantine period that Trajan seems to have destroyed or something like that, the emperor Trajan. So Jews had settled there, a big settlement in Egypt. If you go by Yochanan ben Kareach after the some Gedalia business, the survivors of the first temple ran away and settled in Egypt. They perished there, but they settled in Egypt. So, in other words, I hear that in those cases, you're talking about, you know, returning to Egypt and living there. Uh, then you get into all those halachic things. But what's Sancheirev? There was no uh, move that we know of for the Jewish people in the time of the 10 tribes or 12 tribes, whatever, Chizkia, Sheb and so forth to to, to settle in Egypt. So what's going on over here? But yet, the Gemara that I just read you, Yushalmi, uh, says, oh, three times they went to Egypt and it was bad. So you see pretty clearly that what's being referred, if you know a little bit of Tanakh, uh, you understand that what's talking about over there is not the physical return of the Jews to Egypt, because the Jews lived in, in Israel at that time, but the alliance with Egypt It's a political strategy uh, One of the major themes that You find in the prophetic writings Is political advice pr- Beginning with Don't rely on Egypt Mitzrayim is, is a uh, weak read Mishenes koneh rutsuts You lean on it, it breaks And cuts through your hand That's the famous uh, metaphor That they use Egypt In other words, Egypt will always screw you They'll promise to help you in a war, they won't show up and you'll be the sucker. And indeed, this happened repeatedly in Egypt. Hope it's not happening today. Uh, the book of Jeremiah, uh, Yeshayahu, who was around during the time of Chizkiah, and who was prophesying at the time when the north went down, when when, Sancher, uh, when the Asher destroyed the kingdom of the north. Now here I have to warn you, Chazal are very often not exact in their historical descriptions. That's their style. Okay? That's their style. Um, so they'll say, Sanchev did this, that, and the other. If you actually take the trouble to look closely, you'll see it was not Sankhir who ex- exiled the, the ten tribes. It was a Shalmaneser and then Sargon. And Sanchev came after him. I think he was the son of Sargon. But, you know, they used it in the same way that you and I will often see in rabbinic literature, Ezra Nehemia built by Ishani or something like that. Technically speaking, that's not correct. If you actually look in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, they actually showed up a little bit after the base image was rebuilt. But we use these terms in rabbinic literature colloquially. You just got to get used to that. You can't find exactitude sometimes in the statements of Hazal. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can. not It's tricky. Now, so when he says Sanchevi, he means that to kufa the era of Ashur. And indeed, in the book of Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Yishayahu, Isaiah, you find a number of cases, which the Gemara quotes a snippet of, in 30 and 31, in where the prophet is blasting in the name of God, the reliance on Egypt, the alliance with Egypt. Look at chapter 30, for example, in Yeshayon and Isaiah. Uh, you wicked children, you wayward children. You come up with all kinds of political stratagems, but you didn't ask me. Fluent listened closely. And he went down to Egypt to ally with Egypt, in other words, against Asher. Which means, to use modern terminology, you're allying yourself with the Ukraine against Russia is just not smart. And they never asked me, Hashem says to find strength in the power of Pharaoh, meaning, oh, Pharaoh's got a big army, he'll protect us. And to find shade or shelter in the tzil Mitzrayim. And it won't work. You understand? This will all turn out to a sense of shame. Because each will stick you in the back and leave you holding the bag, as they say. And you'll be wiped out by... Ashur, ah, and Paro won't help, and nothing will happen to Paro. You'll be his suckers, because you were like the, uh, uh, what's the right, buffer. Uh, which is what happened, that Israel played the role, unfortunately, a buffer for Egypt in biblical era, under these dumb kings. And so on and so forth. And in the beginning of the next chapter, he says also, again, chapter 31, which is what the Gemara actually quotes, this is not half Torah, so most people don't know it, but it's straight out there, and he says, "Hoy, Well, you dummies who go down to Egypt le'ezra, for al right? And they rely on their horses, meaning because Egypt had horses, as the Chumash is talking about, and therefore they have cavalry, which was like elite troops in the old world. You see, kirov. They're relying on Egypt's chariots and cavalry for lo al kadosh royal instead of relying on kadosh Israel and Hashem. You see, so it's a general theme in the book of Isaiah, and my point is that what's being blasted over here is not the settling of Egypt, which for some reason—I mean, I understand why—the the, the classic was shown him and the the halacha guys are zeroing in on the specific halachic narrow question of whether Jews allowed to live in Egypt. I mean, again, that's all the Lema question. I do understand that. But it's it's much broader than what it's, in my opinion, when it says uh, that king shouldn't uh, have a lot of horses. is omits the Now, in my opinion, which, as I always say, is all I have, I think you see something even more human and large over here. Remember, this is the book of Devarim. This is a speech of Moshe. Later on, Hashem takes a. But this is speech of Moshe. What is the story? This is sad what I'm about to say, but it's a fact. What is the story of the Chumash? The Jewish people constantly want to go back to Egypt. They're hooked. They have an addiction on Egypt. God takes them out with the ten plagues. Pretty soon, very quickly, he say, "Let's go back to Egypt." Over and over again, as you know the story. Even after they get the Ten Commandments. So you figure, oh, now it's a different story. Pascha, Zuma, blah, blah, blah. Nope. <laughs> Matter of fact, while they're waiting for the 40 days, they make a golden calf, which is the God of Egypt. You see? And over and over, I mean, you know this. Right? Over and over again, anytime they're the complaining about the food, about this, that, and the other, let's go back to Egypt. If you're Moshe Rabbeinu, let alone HaKadosh Baruch it's very frustrating. I got you out of Egypt, me me avdus, you know, you were, you were suffering a lot. They don't see it that way. So the Jewish people, stubbornly, won't go along with God's narrative. God's narrative is, I helped you, I took you out of Egypt from a bad place. For whatever reason, they want to keep going back. And when they get close to Israel, they want to go back. And if you're in the case of Moshe Rabbeinu, giving this particular speech, what is the exact historical circumstance? Ela this is part of a speech that Moshe gives shortly before he dies. So he's dealing not with the generation that left Egypt because they died out in the desert, but the younger generation. As I pointed out a couple weeks ago from Rashi, when we're told when Aaron died, which was six months before this speech, the Jews broke away, appointed a new king, and he led them out of Egypt. Remember that Rashi? It's a Sifri. They made a new Rosh, a new leader, and they said, go back to Egypt. And Moshe had to send the Levian after them, like his elite unit. And they had a civil war. And it says A killed B and B killed A. So those Jewish Jews fell on both sides. Somewhere it says thousands, by the way. Uh, I forget exactly the source. It says thousands. So think about that. Here you are, Arvis Moab, about to enter the land of Israel, Canaan. Adke de if you stand in a mountain, you can see the whole country like Moshe does. They're right there. He led them 40 years successfully through the desert. Everything he said to come true came true. All the bad stuff he said not to do had consequences. In spite of everything else, they just said, Aaron's dead. Heck with it. We're out of here. And they appointed a king, a leader. And what did the leader do to lead him back to Egypt? And it was only through violent civil war, which left thousands of casualties. We don't, we don't think about this. That the 12 tribes were reluctantly, I emphasize reluctantly, forced back on the road to hear the final Musa Shemus from Moshe which includes an injunction that if you ever set up a king, he shouldn't be like the guy you just appointed. Because that guy was leading you back to Egypt. Now, Moshe is speaking of the future. He's, he's a Zabola but it could be even when you're back in Eretz row, you might want to go back to Egypt. Literally? Well, maybe not literally. You see, once they take over Canaan to the degree that they do, so if somebody has his own form and it's a going concern, and it's prosperous, you go, we're taking a going concern. So uh, the guy said, okay, I don't want to go back physically to Egypt because I got it good over here. But I want to maintain my shaykhahs with Egypt. You see that? No, that Yashiv raima can mean, in my opinion, don't return the people back to maintain a relationship with Egypt because Egypt will always misuse you. Uh, you see, for some reason, the history of the Jewish people is they have some weakness when it comes to Egypt. They want to live there, settle there, do business there, even though it's not good. It is historically very interesting to me that until very recently, until the rise of the State of Israel, there always was a Jewish community Jew in Egypt. And most of the time, not all the time, most of the time, the Jews had a pretty good in Egypt. That's interesting what I'm saying. If you go century after century under the different rulers, you know, the Ptolemies, the Romans, the Byzantines even, the Arabs, the Mamelukes, all these different groups. Uh, Egypt always has had a pretty good economy because of the Nile and the big exports of grain and stuff to the rest of the world. If you want to have a very inkling of what I'm talking about, uh, read the letters of the Bartonura, because they're very descriptive. I did this once. I did a a podcast on Bartonura. And he visits Egypt on his way to Israel from Europe. And he describes there in a fascinating way, you know, all in all the Hebrew, the flourishing economy of Egypt and the revenues that come in. So, even in the Middle Ages, he was in the 1400s, 15th century, end yeah, of the Middle Ages. Egypt is still rocking and rolling. Therefore, Jews are always interested in going there. Because if they're Jews, believe me, they don't become be farmers. The Jews came there. Because once you have a big economy going back and forth, a lot of import and export, you can hop iron. And that is what Jews have always done. If you want to be technical about it, it could even be of vayishor but own mode doesn't necessarily only mean numerically; probably means commercially as well. I've discussed that in the past, and so it's just a natural, I don't know what attraction. What I mean is, you see, in the Chumash, the Jews didn't look back to Egypt the way somebody said, "Oh, I wouldn't go back to Hitler." You know, I wouldn't go back to Germany. They never talk like that. They say, Oh, the good old days in Egypt. They're always having the folk memory of the Jewish people. Egypt was a good place. Even though they also obviously knew about the slavery. But memory is funny. Memory is a funny thing. Sometimes people have memories in which they forget the good and they concentrate on the bad things happen. This is when you have. Uh, bad relationship, for example, between parents and children. I, the mother took care of you and your father did this all these years. Yeah, but I remember he slapped me over here and she did this to me here. And one time they left me home. You know, sometimes people focus on the bad. Sometimes the opposite. Sometimes people say, oh, I had good times over here when I was young. You forget all the bad stuff that happens. Um, you forget the bad stuff that happens. And so whatever the case is, the Jewish people in their memory has something positive about Egypt, it is Lemais a fact that relatively speaking, with a few exceptions, over the century the Jews had a good in Egypt, meaning the government there didn't bother them much. They got money out of them. But Egypt never was a country, listen to what I'm saying, that expelled the Jews. I said, That's interesting. I'm talking about throughout history. And so if you move to Egypt, like Maimonides, <laughs> right? Well, the realm is a perfect example. He moved to Egypt because there was no anti-Semitism, relatively speaking. And the economy was good. He can make a living. The Rambam's biography is he tried to make Aliyah. The economy didn't work. this didn't work. He wanted to. If it was up to the Rambam, he would have lived in Akko. It didn't work out. So he ended up living in Egypt. Okay, I get it. His brother was in business there. He developed a medical practice there. And we all know that sort of thing. But the Rambam's not unique. Okay? And so there's something in the genes of the Jewish people that they like Egypt. And this is what Moshe Bain is uh, driving him crazy. Now mind you, Moshe was born in Egypt and he grew up in the Egyptian culture and had been a prince of Egypt. So it's really interesting that he, sa- that he says, look guys, I get it. And once you get rich, you know, the temptation to hang around Egypt, that's where they got all the flesh pots. You know, That's where they got the luxury places. Right? But Egypt has a way of eating you up and don't do it. So, basically, it's a busyness um, that Jews want to go back to Egypt. But you and I are not unfamiliar with that because I'm going to ask you the following question. How many Jews today live in Germany? Okay? Theoretically, how can somebody live in Germany? After what the Germans did to the Jewish people? Which is true. They don't hear it that way, do they? My own niece and nephews is in Israel. If I told them, oh, don't buy a Volkswagen or something like that, they're looking like I'm crazy. They don't cop. Only my generation or the generation of the survivors, here's such a thing, you don't buy something German. They, they just don't get it. In other words, the words have no meaning for them. Uh, such is the nature of memory. And in addition to that, as I said before, it's also true that there's a permanent existential problem that God put us geographically on the borders of Egypt. I didn't do it. God did it. And the place the Jews are going to is Mamish right next door to Egypt, as we all know, surrounded by a desert. It's very interesting. But more sense, if Hashem took us out of Egypt and took us to New Zealand, okay, then you'd be far away. You know, like for example, the survivors of the Holocaust who came to America, let's say, or something like that, or Australia or whatever. So it was in the distant past and it's far away. Here, as you and I know, the Jews left Egypt, and they really ended up settling in a place which is technically three days away, as we say in the beginning of Parshas Mishalach, right? It's three days away. Now, it's pretty scary, um, as you know. It's pretty weird. Uh, so you you have to go away from Egypt, but you're always very close to Egypt. This means that the Good Lord set us up in a situation where geographically and politically what happens in Egypt is always going to affect Israel. And when it says over here, you shouldn't return to Egypt, listen closely. Once upon a time, you were physical slaves in Egypt. But even if you don't physically return to Egypt, you can play the role of slave in the international arena by being the patsy of Egypt, by allowing them to manipulate you. And this is what happened throughout our history. Especially in the period, like I just read you from Yeshayo and later Yermio and others, which is, if you look at the map, you'll see that Egypt is over there in Africa, North Africa. The great empires of the past were in the Middle East on the other side of Eretz Israel, Ashur, Bavel, Persia, all that. This is the biblical era, uh, the Hittites. So, in other words, Israel is in the middle. On one side is Egypt, and the other side are the, are the big powers. The Egyptians, and I don't blame them, as a matter of statesmanship, let uh, me say it like this. We need a buffer. You get it? So let's play the Jews. You hear what I said? Let's play the Jews. Uh, let them be the patsies, and they'll fight our enemies. Worst case to worst, the best situation is if both sides wipe at each other, Let's say, for, just for argument's sake, hey, Sanchev invaded the land of Judah in the time of Isaiah, Chizgiel. And as we know, at the last minute, just when he was about to destroy Yisholim, a Moloch came and wiped out the Assyrian army. Well, who was the beneficiary of that? Well, the Jews, yes. Egypt, mainly. What do I mean? Eretz Yisrael, the kingdom of Yehuda, was 99% wiped out. I've discussed this in the past. The invasion of Sanchir was devastating. You can go online and look at pictures of the siege of and other places. So the Assyrians came down and devastated and wiped out the whole Yehuda, with the exception of Lion, which at the last minute, thanks to a miracle, survived. So when the war was over and the Assyrian army withdrew, because Amalk killed most of them. It's not like Eretz Israel was hooray for us. It's like, uh uh-uh, uh, here comes the survivors. There was a process to to recover. And the prophet Yeshayahu talks about the fact that the recovery will take a couple of years. Well, guess what? Egypt wasn't touched. You see what I'm saying? The Egyptians could pat themselves on the back and say, we played the Jews okay, because Lema'isah, Asher came down, attacked Yehuda, and by the time it's over, for whatever reason, Asher was wiped out. That means Egypt is now safe. And they did that repeatedly. The Nevi'eh Yisrael always warned against that. The Malchi Israel didn't listen. And that's the Yoshi Wassam Mitzrayimah. I hate to say it, but we're living in through this down, down until today. At the current time, the state of Israel, of course, had a bunch of wars with Egypt 48, 56, 67, 73. Then Egypt, for its own cynical reasons, made peace with Israel. The Egyptians don't mean it. Anybody with a brain knows it. The good Lord has so organized the Middle East. It's fascinating that the current regime in Egypt is very unpopular. The, 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 in fact, the entire uh, lead, uh, regime of Egypt now, what they call the Republic, which has been there since fifty two, which is really uh, a dictatorship of the army, is not popular among the masses. Egypt has monumental problems. I think they have 100 million people and they have an economy for that. They even have trouble now with the Nile might be dried up by Ethiopia or somebody like that, Kenya. If you look. See, so Egypt is in Gehakta Terrace, which is okay with me. And there's what you call the Muslim Brotherhood and such groups that they want to take over. So Balkarchashovasan, it is in the interest of the ruling group in Egypt ever since the Sadat Treaty of 79. It was Sadat, it was killed, then Mubarak, and now it's this other guy, Sisi. The way they look at it is, the survival of the Egyptian regime depends, among other things, among many things, on an alliance with Israel of a certain sort. But don't fool yourself. The minute either that regime falls, or they see it's not in their interest anymore, they'll screw Israel so fast, you don't want to know what happened. And Israel is, in my opinion, a little too close with them. But Nebuchadnezzar, we have, no, we have no, no, no choice. Egypt, Israel's faced with the Hamas and the Hezbollah and the Iranians and who knows what and the Palestinian, the PLO and all this other business. So, you know, you have to play whatever game you can. But the Pusik warns you to watch out for Egypt because it's Mishanis Konoratsutz. And this week's partially warned you, Laman Yoshev is on Jews have a tendency have a weakness, not use our brains when it comes to Mitzrayim. Um, I remember reading a book by the Israeli ambassador to Egypt back in the 90s. Oh boy, he saw, he told what Egypt was doing at that time when officially they were peace and friends with with Israel. And it's pretty sad that Israel has to rely on Egypt to be the intermediary to end the wars in Gaza and all this other kind of business. Like I say, politics makes strange badfellows. Whereas the Egyptians always view everything very cynically, Jews get hooked on, on, on the idea that Egyptians now our friends. The Egyptians never see anybody as their friends. I know what I'm talking about historically. Rather, they apply the principle of Palmerston. Remember, Palmerston said, England has no friends, England has no enemies, England has interests. You see? So that's Egypt. Egypt has no friends, no enemies, Egypt has interests. Israel... They know it at one level, but they also, you know, get hooked on the idea, oh, we visited Cairo, we have a Pesach hotel there, who knows? And if the Prime Minister of Israel, like Lapid, goes to Egypt, it's a big deal, watch out. The Pesach warns you. As I said before, the Chazal says, you have three cases. You have uh, Trajan when they lived there. You have Yochanan ben Karech when they lived there. And you have Sancher where they didn't live there, but they allied with them and actually put their trust in Egypt. And that those are the words not of mine but that's as I, I read you before yesheo they they trust i mean the the language is just remarkable where does he get the beginning of chapter 30 pergamon uh hahochol leraz with rima lochaolo lo os bemos parov velachsos betselmos rima but watch out hoilekha mos parol abochus fechasos betselmos rima khlimo anyway i think that's a uh, my take on what means, Lawn, the Sheep of Summit's Up. And uh, with that, I bid you a good day. Once again, I want to thank the Bucks for sponsoring this week. And now I to get down to preparing for College. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com dot